Our guest this week saves the day. You'll hear more about that on this week's podcast. We talk about Facebook and how it can help with your donor database. We also learn from our guest how we can take and learn things from the real estate industry and add it to our fundraising and marketing practices. That's all coming up on Small Shop Fundraising. Small Shop Fundraising is brought to you by Griffin Fundraising and Marketing, a consulting firm here to help nonprofits with their fundraising and marketing goals. Go to gfmky.com to learn more. Hello and welcome to Small Shop Fundraising. I'm your host, Liz Hack. And Small Shop Fundraising is a podcast dedicated to small to medium-sized nonprofits and the topics and issues facing them today. Your host, Liz, had a little bit of an issue last week, and I had a wonderful interview set up with a philanthropy leader that I was going to share with you this week. However, my car got broken into and my laptop was stolen, so... I had to shift things around a little bit and pivot. Everybody uses that word way too much this year, but I had to pivot and welcome a new guest for this week's podcast. Some of you may know him. He is the owner, founder of Finish Line Realty. He is the co-founder of Real Estate Distilled, which is a residential real estate conference held in Louisville, Kentucky. And first and foremost, he is my husband. Welcome, Scott Hack. Hey, everybody. Hey, Scott. Thanks for being here. And I really appreciate you spending some time with me and my audience of small shop fundraising. Some people might be wondering, why on earth would I have my real estate broker husband on a nonprofit fundraising and marketing podcast. And really it's because some of the things that we work on together, I have noticed that there is a huge intersection between some of the things that real estate agents do in sales and some of the things that fundraising professionals do in the nonprofit world with donors. Yeah. I think that, you know, you and I have had conversations about this before. Um, At the end of the day, um, sales are sales, and marketing is marketing, and so much about sales and marketing is about building trust and developing relationships, and I know that that's a big um, key to getting donors to believe in the mission and making donations to the nonprofits that you help you know, support. So there's a lot of things that I'm doing with my own database and my own lead generation funnels where we are trying to help people um, buy and sell houses, and we are helping educate them on what that process looks like. And, um, and I, there's a, just a lot of similarities, I think, between nurturing a donor database and nurturing a database of buyers or sellers. I mean, it's still sales. It's still marketing. So, Yeah, and some of you might be cringing at the word donor database Some nonprofits don't have one. I've worked with nonprofits who have donor data everywhere in several different Excel spreadsheets and um, on crowdfunding online platforms. 
And the first thing I tell them to do, and if this is you, the first thing you need to do is put it all in one place. And that is exactly what I think a lot of times you as a real estate professional and a broker with, how many agents do you have underneath you now? There's 10. 10 plus you? Yes. So you have all of these potential uh, places where your agents could be holding potential clients or uh, current clients or past clients, and it all needs to be stored in one spot, don't you think? Yeah. So we have a tool that we use, and I mean... The common marketing term is CRM, so it's a client or customer relationship manager, and it's essentially a specialized database that allows us to do, you know, tagging and tracking track communication to those people, um, and it's it's where basically it's the heart of my business. It's where I'm able to do all my forecasting from. It's where we are able to do all of our experimenting from. There's some simple things that you can. You can kind of take, like if I have it, for instance, I might be just kind of jumping around. I have a tendency to do that. But if I send an email to 25 or 50 different leads that are in my database and I get a response back from those 25 or 50 people, then I can say that, okay, if I were to send that to a larger segment of my database, what kind of response rate am I going to get? So I've always been fascinated by e-commerce and pay-per-click advertising. The premise just with pay-per-click advertising is that if you have a product that generates, let's say it generates $50 in sales, and of that $50, let's say your contribution to your profit is $30, then you can essentially spend up to $20 to generate a customer or generate a donor to still net in, in the profitable sales. Um, See, so that's basically how much you have to spend. So when you're experimenting with all of your different marketing channels, if you were to spend $10 on generating one, one lead and that lead spends $50 and you're able to then generate $10 in profit, um, that's a successful transaction for, for that company. You know, if you know how much your acquisition cost is for the client, then you know how much you can spend. And if you have a proven formula that generates revenue, then you can scale it to infinity potentially. So, Wow, Scott, that's a lot to unpack right there. It's a lot. Let's, I want to go back to what you were talking about with certain databases and other databases. From a fundraising perspective, we talk about that as segmentation. Segment it based on what they gave to uh, when they gave, if it's at the end of the year, you might target those folks who gave at the end of the year, the previous year, lapsed donors. And it sounds like those are the same kind of things that you do in real estate as well. Somebody that is segmenting towards a specific zip code, perhaps, which uh, fundraisers do as well. Um, if they see a high, high quality, uh, high, a lot of donors in one specific area, they might target a zip code uh, in the country or in the state that they reside. What are the ways you all segment your client database? So, I mean, we would do segmentation based off of likelihood to become a client. Uh, What are the chances of converting that person into a sales transaction? So what is the timeline someone's looking to make a purchase? Are they looking to purchase in the next um, zero to three months, three months to a year? You know, there's that um, saying that, 
grass grows where it's watered and when you're dealing with a finite amount of time you need to spend time with people who um, have the greatest ability for you to generate revenue whether that's for me like doing a sale or that's for you attracting a donor that's willing to make a donation to support your organization so you've got to be smart with your time so segmenting the database I think helps you know who to spend time with who to develop those relationships and why that segmentation can help delegate responsibilities for specific donors so it's not as cumbersome on one person. Usually the small to medium-sized nonprofit may not have a major donor person, but they do have someone that helps them with what we're talking about now, which is the database. You also talked about pay-per-click. Um, now, I don't know how much how, uh, use pay-per-click at all, but if they were interested in learning more about pay-per-click, what would be the first step? And um, what are your resources that you use when you do pay-per-click? Well, I was using pay-per-click kind of as an example of how having intelligence about your database and what your response rates and your conversion rates can mean to your overall budget. I think if we were to look stronger at a, a nonprofit use, then most of what any kind of paid advertising I would do uh, I would put into a social, primarily Facebook and Instagram. And really because my experience, you know, Liz and I have been together for 10, 12 years, and um, you've been in the nonprofit, you know, world you're almost your entire life, it seems like, but um, definitely um, our entire marriage. And it seems like that, you know, a big part of getting that trust and getting that, that donor to become involved with the organization starts with just making people aware of what the organization does. There's so many smaller nonprofits that don't have the, the brand recognition like Metro United Way or you know Heart Foundation or someone like that um, that have these other needs and just being in, in a place where people are spending time. So one of my mentors, Eric Blackwell, has always taught me that you know when you're talking with people, their favorite radio station is... Um, it's WWIM. So what's in it for me basically is kind of you know the transact or what it comes down to. And when you're communicating with people, you need to tell them why and what the impact of that nonprofit will be. Um, and I think one of the easiest way to do that today is on social. And if you already have again a, a database of people, Facebook gives you the ability to upload that database and do what they call a look-alike audience. So Facebook, like fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you feel about it, knows a ton about you, more than just what you put into your profile. They understand the stories that you click on. They understand, you know, where you, what videos you watch, um, all of this big data, and they're able to extract that big data and then find other people that have the same browsing habits as you, people who might like the same pages as you people who show interest in the same causes, that click on the same type of links. And they're able to take your database of, say, 2,500 people and blow it up to 25,000 people in a lookalike audience. And then you can expand and potentially get in front of people who would have the same type of response to the message you're sharing. Wow, what a tool that would be. Uh, that's amazing. Just so I understand what you're saying, you would suggest nonprofits, especially small to medium-sized nonprofits that don't have a huge uh, employee base to help with this 
you know, if, if you don't know how to do it, get a volunteer, for example. Or there's probably YouTube videos on how to do what you're talking about. Facebook also has a, a help desk. You, you pay for when you run ads to the audience. Mm-hmm. So Facebook advertising works on is a display network. Um, you can choose different ones. You can, you can either pay per click or you can pay per impression of the ad. What, what's important is that if you basically treat every donor and every um, person in your database as having a lifetime value, and then you work to put more people into your database and extract value or donations from that database, then you can make projections based on the number of people in your database on what you might be able to do to grow your, your budget. If you were, for instance, looking at trying to create an annual fund of $40,000 and you can look at what your contribution is from each donor, then you could maybe say that, okay, I need to have 100,000 people in my database or something you know, along those lines. Knowing your numbers is important when you're choosing your marketing and trying to generate, you know, that sort of thing. And that's all comes down to having a database that lets you collect that data so you can actually analyze it. So having a database. Yeah, having a database. I want to jump back to, and I, I apologize for getting very deep very quickly, but talking about marketing and, and getting in front of people and delivering a message to them, just like in real estate, the challenge I have is that I want to keep people inside of my database and I want to stay top of mind for when someone makes the decision that they want to have a real estate transaction. But statistically, I know that the average person buys or sells a house seven plus years. And that number actually is getting bigger. It might be eight plus years now. So they wait eight, eight seven to eight years before they have a house yeah. Transaction. So I have past clients that, you know, I've helped them buy or sell one house in the, in the beginning of my career. And statistically, they're still in that same house. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been doing real estate for 12 years. And then I have a few clients, you know, that have made a move. But that the average is, you know, seven, eight years right now. But I don't want to not talk to my database only once every eight years. Right. So I have to come up with information and touch points that make sense, that are interesting to someone that may not be interested in making a purchase today or may not actually have the means or the ability today to make a donation. But I don't want to alienate those people in my database. I need to keep a message out there. I need to stay in front of them. Okay, so so we've talked about Facebook and, and how you can grow your audience, even in a pandemic like we are right now. It sounds like Facebook is is definitely a time worth spent in that social media platform as well as Instagram. And now we're talking about the content. So you've identified your audience. You're going to try and grow your audience on, on these social media platforms. But now we've got to figure out what they want to hear about. And you're right, Scott. Frequency is key because you want to build a relationship and you want to build it on trust. You want to build it on your integrity, your interest in these, in these clients and helping them so there's a lot that goes into it because it is such a, a it can be such a stressful thing with donations and and fundraising it's very similar because you you want to frequently speak to your donors uh, no matter the size gift that they give so it's not like buying a house usually sometimes it can be if you're in a capital campaign you want to be able to communicate to those donors who you think are going to be a part of that capital campaign at a high high capacity, 
it. And you want to make sure that they understand exactly what it is the capital campaign is for. So frequency is important, but also content and what you say is important. Um, so do you, so what do you what does real estate do that maybe we could learn from as as fundraisers that might be something that we could transfer to the fundraising world? As you were talking and I was I was kind of thinking, I already kind of had a couple ideas. I, I think in this perspective that nonprofits have it easier than a lot of sales channels. If someone's willing to make a donation to an organization, then they have already shown interest in that organization's mission. And I think updates on what that's, you know, what's it's going back to what's in it for for me, the uh, WWFM, that's, that's what it is, um, what's in it for me, um, radio station, and delivering that message to, to those people, them knowing how their donation impacted or how the organization has impacted the mission and the community, I think, is enough to stay top of mind for those people. Real estate, um, we have, of course, home values. So everyone wants to know what their home is worth and is it increasing or decreasing. Thanksgiving is um, an event that seems to see a lot of growth in, in outreach from real estate agents. So what you're seeing a lot of agents do is a Pi Day event. The premise basically is that you know past clients get a pumpkin pie or an apple pie for around Thanksgiving. So we're inviting people to uh, meet with us. We're giving the, the family um, an apple pie or a pumpkin pie. And it, it gives us an opportunity to have a message with our, our database that's not about real estate. So I don't know exactly how to correlate that into the nonprofit world, but doing an event like that gives me the opportunity to talk to people about How's your day? How, how's the kids? How, how's your family? How's everything going? Just like being human to human connection. Oh, and, and when are you going to come pick up your pie? You're going to come on Tuesday? You're going to come on Wednesday? That sort of thing. And then from a cost standpoint, I've done some client appreciation events in the past where we've done like movie theater events and we've rented out a movie theater and I've given a ticket to, you know, a family of four would be, you know, somewhere around, um, Eight or nine dollars a ticket, so let's just I'm just gonna round up and say it was you know forty dollars per family, whereas you can do a pie for a family for less than ten dollars, so it's a much cheaper form of outreach. And then I can take that one or two day event where I'm handing out pies to my clients and turn it into six different touches. I can invite them to the event. I can check in and see if they're gonna be able to make it. I can remind them about the event you know, a couple different times. And then, of course, I can reach out to the people who came and I can thank them for coming to the event or I can reach out to the people who said they were going to come and didn't come and let them know that we missed them. So doing that one event gives me the opportunity to do six touches and stay in front of as many people as I can. Yeah, so it's this is very similar. And hopefully some of my audience are shaking their head feeling like this is something that they've heard and have done for their own nonprofit when it comes to what we call stewardship and cultivation. So you're cultivating that event, that uh, that donor, by inviting them to the event. So even if they don't come, they feel included. And inclusiveness is very top of mind right now. People want to feel included. People need to be included. We also talked about touches 
and being top of mind because you've, you've reached out to them several different times. Uh, building that, that cultivation face-to-face is so important if, if you want to continue to keep that donor and that volunteer involved with the nonprofit. Having them come to the event, ask them how they are, get them involved, tell them about what the nonprofit is doing and how they are using funding to do said project or to to support more um, of their participants. But then also the stewardship part of it. It might be a little different than, than what you all do in real estate, but to, to really just be grateful and thank them for their participation, for spending time with the nonprofit, for reading the newsletter, for volunteering, for coming forward to or whatever it is, being grateful and showing gratitude and saying thank you for taking your valuable time and spending it with us. Perhaps that's something that real estate agents do or should do when, because it is such a big purchase that these potential clients and current clients and past clients might want to be thanked for, for spending time with you since there are so many agents to choose from. Absolutely. Some very similar and growing that relationship, engaging with those folks, making them and showing them how important they are to the success of the nonprofit. And it seems like there's a lot of correlation. I love the pie day idea. I think that's really, that's a really thoughtful thing. Let me, uh, let's back up and um, talk about other alternatives to something like the pie day. We've been to a few, we have young kids, so we we don't get out as much as, as we probably would like to, but We've been to a few nonprofit events, right? And uh, uh, lack of a better word, galas. And there is uh, almost always a silent auction area yes. where there are experiences and there are items there at that at that silent mm-hmm. auction. But occasionally there'll be items in there that are that are fairly unique. They're experiences. They're things that you can't get. You can't go buy retail off the rack. Like it might be a higher ticket item, but like it might be like a tour at a bourbon distillery, but it's with the master distiller. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you can't usually walk in off the street every distillery and have a tour with the master distiller. Right. So there's something that's special and that's unique about that experience. So if a nonprofit's able to leverage a relationship with a other vendor, an other partner, um, and deliver an experience virtual, my parents are really involved in the South Oldham Rotary. And they had to cancel their largest on um, largest fundraising event this year, which was a bourbon and wine tasting event. And they pivoted, and they changed the event to a series of virtual tastings and, and mixology type lessons. Yeah, it was awesome. Um, they partnered with some with someone that uh, will come on online and do like basically like a webinar where you watch them mix drinks and beforehand you get a box or a kit of all of the cocktail mixes. You, uh, they also partnered with another company that does um, charcuterie boards. And so you had different levels of ticketing for uh, this particular event and for two, and it could be kind of like an, um, a fun virtual date night. And I thought that was brilliant. Yeah. So, I mean, they, they took something that, you know, really is, is something you can go and you can buy off the shelf, but they packaged together and made it an experience. 
and the education portion that came from that uh, particular company they partnered with that did the videos. I mean, that was the part that was kind of unique. It was something that you can't just go and buy off the shelf. Mm -hmm. So they actually had that education component. So anytime you can put together something that you have, are able to give people access to that they wouldn't normally be able to get, um, and then you can create an event around that for the nonprofit, again, that gives you some opportunities for doing touches. Mm -hmm. And then if there's something that is obviously adjacent or in that category for the nonprofit. Yeah. So I have one. Yeah. So e-commerce. We go. I want to go back to that. We you touched on that just ever so lightly earlier, and e-commerce can mean a lot of different things. And what I'd like to see nonprofits do is create their own, what I've been hearing be called independent revenue stream. So basically, a social uh, entrepreneurship model to where they are selling a service or a product. And they're able to raise money off of it. Um, one of the places that does that has been doing this for a very long time is Youth Build Louisville. They build garden benches and potting tables out of cedar, and they're beautiful. And um, I actually have um, two of those items in our backyard. And it also supports the 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 students that are in their program because they build all of the all of the products and they create the product lines. So they're learning a lot and there's an end product for the, the donor. I think this is really important and can be used online just as easily as in person. Um, there's another new nonprofit telling me about a uh, holistic kit that they have started to uh, promote and market to um, the Louisville, Kentucky area. And it's on their website and it's this nonprofit is trying to figure out ways to market that independent revenue stream or this product to support the nonprofit's mission of supporting uh, at-risk, low-income to moderate-income women and healthcare workers uh, with mental health issues or addiction issues. So uh, it fits really well into their into their mission. So what kind of tips might you give someone who's trying to do something innovative like that? Yeah, so I think that one of the things that I would say is that video is a very powerful medium and testimonials go a long way. So if that nonprofit has had some success in getting those um, kits into employees' hands and they're able to show that it ended up helping their mental health, then um, having those people share that story, putting that information on the website, putting together a PDF, a one-page PDF, and then I would do some cold calling or let's get some momentum started that way. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, Scott, for being here today. Um, I don't want to keep you too much longer. I know uh, you've got some other things to do today, but I do want to ask you Four of my one common questions. These are questions that I ask every guest that I have on Small Shop Fundraising. Um, nothing too difficult, I don't think. Hopefully you'll be able to answer these. Fingers crossed. <laughs> what is the one thing you love most about nonprofits? You know, my, my answer is probably different than most of the guests that you have on because, you know, my experience and my thoughts when I'm looking at nonprofits is, is basically through your eyes. I'm very lucky to see how when you get a project 
through the finish line or you get a project, uh, it's momentum started and they start heading towards their goal. I love seeing how fulfilling that is for you personally. So, and I know that these, um, these nonprofits uh, are always challenged with meeting their goals and getting to where they need to be. The impact that you're able to have on those nonprofits is fulfilling for me. Mm, so That's really sweet. That's really nice. Okay, so what's one thing that you love less about nonprofits? I don't know a real nice way to say it. Um, oh, I think <laughs> I'll just say that, you know, there are things in my life that I know that I'm not qualified to do and that I need to hire someone for it. And I think that nonprofits are stuck in this, a lot of times this issue where they have more time than they have money, but not expertise. You know, obviously I would not suggest to any of my clients that they sell their home for sale by owner, just as I don't know if that many nonprofits need to be doing, you know, um, planning that they're maybe not qualified for. But I understand the issue. There's there, there's no money, there's no money. But I, I do think that perhaps nonprofits should concentrate on what their volunteer skill sets are and leverage that mm-hmm. and then outsource where they, they really need to. Yeah, yeah. Our buddy Daniel Johnson and I, we talked about uh, getting your time back by using other folks to help you with your uh, with your projects in a different Small Shop Fundraising podcast. Um, check that one out after you listen to this one. Yeah, everybody has expertise. Like, our gutters need to be clean. Oh my gosh, so bad. And I'm not <laughs> getting a ladder out and going up and down the ladder because I don't do physical labor every day and I'm not going to take the chance of falling off the ladder. I'm going to hire someone yeah, yeah. to do that for my safety and, you know, make sure my that... My sanity. It, yes, your sanity. Yeah, that's so, important. Um, but, you know, I can cut the grass. So you, that's something... You are so good at that. So that's <laughs> something, you know, I can take on. But, I, you know, you just need to know where your limits are. Right. Okay, here's another one for you. What is one of your favorite resources that would be helpful for nonprofit? Uh, G Suite, Suite. you know, Google Docs, um, Google Sheets. uh, So easy to do collaboration remotely. You can work on the same documents um, and have share them with people. Really, no one does it better than Google, especially at the cost. I mean, it's hard to beat free. Yeah, I thought you were going to say Slack. Um, You know, (laughs) I love Slack too. it obviously is a, a great tool for communication and staying out of inboxes. Last question. What is one thing you see your industry doing to impact uh, equity, inclusiveness, and diversity? One thing. Well, I actually don't think that there's just one thing. And I don't know if it's something that I can summarize in two or, two or three minutes because, as you know, I'm long-winded. Mm. The National Association of Realtors, for instance, this year – has picked up John Legend as a one of the keynote speakers. Oh, I didn't know that. That's cool. Yeah, and you know, you and I have been a, a fan of his music, mm-hmm. but he's also a advocate for diversity and low housing income. But there's been some pushback, like like he has been quoted as saying, and I'm summarizing because I don't remember the exact quote, but it was something along the lines of, for instance, the real estate industry this year got rid of the term master bedroom in a lot of locations. So in the Louisville market, we got rid of the term master bedroom on our ML in our multiple listing service. So when you're looking at a house online, instead of saying master bedroom, it'll say primary bedroom. And John Legend had a quote that was something like, the issue with housing and diversity is that real estate agents and, and realtors are addressing 
that as an issue instead of what the real issue is, is that not every, um, houses that are available are not being shown to people in, with diverse backgrounds. And I don't think that that's a necessarily a problem we have in Louisville. It might be something that's more impactful in other markets, but I know my peers and everyone that I've come across, um, if someone wants to see a house, we don't care um, you know, who the person is. We're mm-hmm. happy to go let's show go that. Sh- let's go show the house. Yeah, let's go see that, see that house. Uh, so, but I think that the, you know, obviously, if someone's saying that there's enough of it happening that it exists, I'm just saying I've just not seen it personally. Mm-hmm. So, because there's that type of issue that's out there, there's just a lot of education. And then something that I know that's specifically impacting our local market is lending standards that were put in place by the federal government a long time ago, um, and the redlining stuff that was taking place. There's a fascinating article that John Borders with Borders and Borders wrote earlier this year that talked about how basically the government was mm-hmm. played a large part in having redlining come to, come to um, life. Oh, yeah, okay. And some of the old areas that were considered in the redlined districts, the property values in, in those neighborhoods are, are fairly low. And there's some lenders that won't loan on those houses, not because of where they're at, but because of their value. So, for instance, there might be a twenty-five or a forty-five or forty-five thousand dollars house in that neighborhood, and the lender doesn't want to take the time and expense to do a loan for a forty thousand dollars house where they're going to have a um, you know a typical down payment for FHA loan, a government-backed loan is three and a half percent down. Well, there's there's not enough skin in the game for the buyer and there's not enough skin in the game for the lender to make enough money on that loan with the potential that they might have to take over that property and then pay to maintain it with grass cutting and things like that. Because, so, because it went to foreclosure or something. Yeah, because it might end up in foreclosure. So this year I know um, there's actually been an initiative to put forth basically – lending for these smaller loans to help people with these affordable houses. Like a microloan? It's a microloan program, yeah. Um, I don't remember all of the details, but one of one of my colleagues here is um, working through that. So, Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there, and it sounds like there is progress because there has been an awareness that perhaps language needs to be changed within an industry like real estate. People are waking up and kind of noticing that perhaps there might need to be some things done nationally as well as locally to to support the community better. Well, I just want to thank you again. Um, I have to say this is you've been the most handsome guest I've had on Small Shop Fundraising. So thank you so much for being here today. I super appreciate it. This has been Small Shop Fundraising. I'm your host, Liz Hack. Thanks for listening.